And uh, I want to say, Happy Reformation Sunday. Did you know this? This is a Sunday which goes all the way back to Martin Luther posting of the 95 Theses on Wittenberg Castle Church a long time ago. And what emerged from the Protestant Reformation, among other things, were certain confessions of faith. And every Sunday, Reformed pastors would preach in the morning service, and then you all would come back for a night service where we would often get to catechize the entire congregation. We would go through creeds like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And all four of those confessions, along with the Barman Declaration, which was written by Karl Barth in the 20th century, are all part of our confessional heritage in our denomination, ECO, a covenant order of evangelical Presbyterians. Which means that we as a church body are a confessional denomination. That we hold to these creeds not as infallible or nor as authoritative like the Holy Scriptures, but as trustworthy guides in articulating Christian doctrines and the living out of the Christian life. And so this morning, I want you to stand and we will say on Reformation Sunday, the Apostles' Creed, people of God, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He shall judge the quick. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. couple notes. One, if you recited older versions of the creed and you heard me try, trying to say this, you probably said that Jesus would come to judge the quick and the dead. Quick simply means not like Speedy Gonzalez, just the alive and the dead that Jesus will come when He comes in glory at the second coming. Second, you say that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, you'll notice that the word Catholic is not capitalized in the creed. The creed is not referring specifically to the Roman Catholic Church, but rather the Catholic Church in the sense of the universal church, gathered in all places and gathered in all times through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's one phrase that is maybe the most controversial and confusing of the entire creed. I believe he descended into hell. Now, the story and the history of the creed on this phrase is curious to say the least. 
The Apostles' Creed was not, in fact, actually penned by the Apostles, but arose in the early church <clears throat> excuse me, as a way of succinctly expressing and confessing the faith. The Creed seems to have originated in its earliest form. <clears throat> Can I do that? You're like, please do. It arose in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, as early as 107 A.D., as baptismal questions, as in, do you believe in God the, uh, the Father Almighty? I believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate? I believe. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church? I believe. And then the candidate would be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet the phrase, descended into hell, is not found in the earliest versions of the creed until about 390 A.D. Some versions actually have buried, but not descended into hell. Other versions have descended into hell, but not buried. And so when the creed was finally codified, this was done in 800 A.D. during the Holy Roman Empire, during the time of Charlemagne descended into hell, was codified as the official dogma and creed of the church. And yet, there persist theologians who are sometimes called deleters. And from speaking to some of you over the last few years, I know that some of you have told me that you actually go silent during this clause, he descended into hell. As early as 1440, granted this is 640 years after the Apostles' Creed was codified, an English bishop decided to exclude the words descended into hell from the Apostles' Creed. And you say, can he do that? In 1991, Wayne Grudem, prominent Protestant theologian, wrote an article entitled, He Did Not Descend Into Hell, a plea for following Scripture instead of the Apostles' Creed. You could read those 12 pages or so on the line. And so today, on Reformation Sunday, we want to take a little bit different tact with the sermon. I want to ask the question, did Christ descend into hell? And what does it even mean? And what are the primary scriptural texts used to support the doctrine. Today, welcome to old school catechism. And so today we are not taking a break from the book of Ephesians, though we are skipping ahead. This week I was supposed to preach on Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. I'm simply going to jump to verses 7 through 10 because this is one of the five verses Five passages that are classically used to support Christ's descent into hell. And so did you get a two-page handout as you came? Somebody asked, is this for this week and next week? No, we're going to go all this week. And so this is one of the reasons that we preach through a biblical book. Last week, I wanted to touch your heart as we looked at Christ's Love, the surpassing love of Christ, the height 
and the width and the length and the depth of the love of Christ. This week, I want to engage your mind. As Christ did say to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to be a church that loves God in all those ways. So let's begin to look at these five passages, and we probably get to two or three, normally used to support the literal view of Christ's descent into hell. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Let me read it with you on the screen here. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things church we preach through books of the bible because i would never just choose these three verses do you realize how hard this was this week and so paul is paul alluding to christ's descent into hell in verse 9 when he says he had also descended into the lower regions the earth Here Paul is alluding to Psalm 68, verse 18, to Yahweh's triumphant ascent upon Mount Zion after he had worked to deliver his people. And Paul applies that psalm to Christ. So here's the movement of that psalm. God came down to earth on Mount Sinai and then ascended on high back to his holy habitation. And so the movement of the psalm is from heaven to earth and from earth back to heaven. And this fits not with a descent into hell, but rather a descent of Christ to earth from heaven in the incarnation. In Ephesians, the cosmology, how Paul viewed the universe can be described as a two-tiered cosmology, the heavens and the earth. And so the NIV and the ESV both translate the phrase as the lower parts. Here it is. He had descended into the lower regions, and I'm going to add, of the cosmos, the earth. The NIV says that he also descended into the lower, and I'm going to add, that is the earth, the earthly regions. Grammarians call this a genitive of apposition. That is, you place a comma and then further define what just came before the comma. This is how the ESV and the NIV are taking verse 19. And this is actually borne out in other places in both the Old and the New Testaments, where the phrase, lower parts of the earth, never means a literal hell, but is rather a poetic way of saying the earth. Consider Psalm 139, verse 15. David says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Literally, it means the lowest parts of the earth. And so David is not saying that he was made or created in hell, 
but rather that God, even from the height of heaven, looked down upon David, his son, on the earth as he was being created. Or consider the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, literally the lower parts of the earth. And so the prophet is stating poetically that all the cosmos, all the heavens, and all the earth should break forth into singing. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 26 could use lower parts of the earth as virtually synonymous to death and burial in the grave. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, uses this descent and ascent, uh, ascent motif. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, referring to the incarnation. In Ephesians 4, I would argue, it is about the incarnation and the ascension of our Lord Jesus, not a literal descent into hell. Turn with me in your little guide there. 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in heaven, because formerly they did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Martin Luther basically says, I've been put, bashing my head against the wall all night on this verse. So here I am preaching what Martin Luther could barely understand, the arrogance of it all. And so what does it mean that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Does this refer to Jesus's literal descent into hell? And yet you'll notice something curious. Peter says that Christ didn't preach to all the spirits in prison, but only to those who formally did not obey during the building of the ark. And so if Jesus descended into hell to declare victory to all the inhabitants of hell, why such a limited audience? Namely, only those who didn't obey during the building of the ark? Of course, it could not have been a message of salvation to these spirits in prison if prison is referring to hell. You might remember Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Or John 3.18, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so the text is super ambiguous if Peter is saying that Jesus literally descended into hell. What does make some sense to me is St. Augustine's proposal many years ago. Augustine argued that the verse does not refer to an activity of Christ between the crucifixion and the resurrection, but rather an activity that Christ did in the Spirit, as it were, during the time of Noah. That is, Christ preached repentance and judgment through Noah in the Old Testament. After all, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, 
Peter does call Noah a preacher of righteousness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, he says that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the Old Testament prophets. So Peter might be saying something like this. When Noah preached judgment through his righteous actions preceding the flood, it was like Jesus preaching through him. And the parallels between Peter's readers and Noah's situation is actually quite similar at several points, which leads further credence to this interpretation. I'll allow you to to read that, uh, that parallel between Noah and Peter's readers. And so the other three, four, five verses, 1 Peter 4, 6, Romans chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, and Acts chapter 2, verse 27, I've given responses to those that you can read uh, afterwards in the handout. And so there's no disputing the actual phrase descended into hell never occurs in the scripture. But you say, well, neither does the word Trinity occur in the scripture. And I agree with you. And so we have to go to these scriptures. And so after spending some time in these five scriptures, it seems to me that the texts of scripture do not support the idea of Jesus going on a literal journey to the underworld, the place called hell between the cross and the resurrection. For instance, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A promise very difficult to deliver on if Jesus was quickly on his way to hell. And Jesus does not say, I will be with you, as if he might go somewhere else first, but rather, you will be with me today in paradise. It's also hard to imagine Jesus crying, it is finished, if there are more suffering to endure in hell, as some argue. It's also hard to imagine Jesus crying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, if his spirit was going to the place of hell, which is not a place where God's spirit resides, but rather is the place of God forsakenness. So what am I advocating? That we strike the phrase, descended into hell, from the Apostles' Creed, not so fast. I think the evidence is shaky for a literal descent into hell. But I do think there is reason to hold on to the phrase for a couple of reasons. And these two interpretations I liken to two opposite sides of the same coin. The first reason is what you might call, what I call, the literary view, hell means Hades in the grave view. Did you get that? The literary view, descended into hell, means descended into Hades or descended into the grave. That's really what the early writers meant when they said descended into hell. The early theologians simply meant that Jesus experienced death like all human beings do. In the early formation of the creed, remember this curious fact. Some versions have buried, others versions have descended into hell. G.I. Packer argues that when the Apostles' Creed came into the English language, the word for hell had suffered from a change in meaning. That is, originally, descended into hell corresponded to the Greek word 
Hades, and the Hebrew word Sheol, both which mean the grave or the realm of the dead. And yet English speakers since the 17th century, for them and for us today, hell now means exclusively the place of final torment for the godless out of the presence of God. Yet what the creed originally meant to say was not that Jesus entered Gehenna, the place of fire and torment, the the most typical word that God uses in his holy scriptures to refer to hell, but that Jesus entered Hades, the place of the grave. This is precisely and exactly how the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1647, interprets the clause descent into hell. Question 50 of the Westminster Confession of Faith asks this, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? Answer, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried, here's the key phrase, and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which has been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. The phrase means that Jesus really died. That Jesus experienced a genuine death. That even as the Son of God, Jesus was really and truly human. And because he was human, he tasted death and the grave for you and I. And yet from the grave and from death, he rose again. And so for me, this is a real option as I confess and recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe he descended into hell as I interpret the creed alongside the biblical text. And so I call it the literary equivalent of hell as Hades and the grave view. Second option is what I would call the theological and symbolic view that Christ suffered the hellish torment of divine disfavor and God forsakenness on the cross. He descended into hell. What does this mean? It means that when Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was at that moment experienced the very torments of hell both in body and in soul. That Jesus on the cross was experiencing utter God forsakenness, which is the very essence of hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is how the Heidelberg Catechism, also part of our confessional heritage, interprets Christ's descent into hell in the Apostles' Creed. Question 44, why does the creed add, he descended into hell? Answer, want to answer this with me? To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. This is the view of John Calvin and Francis Turretin, other major theologians in the Reformed tradition. Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived, writes John Calvin, than to feel yourself forsaken, than to feel yourself estranged from God, 
and when you call upon him, not to be heard. It should be a great comfort to us that there is now no hell that we can face that is greater than the one that Christ endured. He descended into hell. There is no one better to sympathize with us in our suffering and in our hellish moments than Christ Himself. That there is no one else who can save us from the wrath of God except the one who has already experienced it, stared it down, and faced it already. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that Jesus suffered outside the city gates or outside the camp. And you ask, why outside the camp? Why does the writer of Hebrews use this phrase, outside the camp? Well, God dwelled with his people in the Old Testament symbolically in a way that you might say, God dwelled with his people inside the camp. Covenantally, God was present with the people of God inside the camp. Outside the camp was a place of God's disfavor. Outside the camp, symbolically, was a place of divine wrath. Theologically, outside the camp was a place of hell. And so I ask you, where did the Israelites take the carcasses of the sacrificed animals that had become sin before the presence of the Lord? Outside the camp to burn them in fire. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the camp. The New Testament refers to hell many times in terms of fire. The fiery furnace, eternal fire, unquenchable fire. And so for the writer of Hebrews, there is a direct connection between Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which was outside the city gates of Jerusalem, and the Old Testament practice of burning those sacrificial animals outside the camp. Just as the animal sacrifices which had become sin were taken outside the camp, away from the presence of God, to be consumed by fire, so too Christ bore the curse of your sin on the cross outside the camp and away from the presence of God. This was a descent into hell and Christ experienced it for you. And because of your sin and mine. The good news is this. There is now no hell to experience. Because Christ has experienced for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And do you recognize, I might add, that there is another part of the Apostles' Creed that I would take also as symbolic. In a sense, I want to ask, are we to only interpret the Apostles' Creed only in the literal sense? What if you interpret the Apostles' Creed like this? Crucified, dead, and buried. That's literal. That's historical. That's physical. He descended into hell. That's symbolic. That's theological. The third day he rose again from the dead. Again, that's literal, historical, and physical. And then you have this line, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Are we to think that the Father literally, for all eternity, is sitting on a seat 
And then Jesus is always sitting in heaven in a literal sense right next to him, the Father. Or, as I believe, this is symbolic and theological language, a way of saying that Jesus is being granted divine authority, divine power, divine dominion, the rightful king of heaven. He's Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. As Caspar Olivius in the 16th century said, the phrases suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, refer to Christ's suffering which could be seen, while the phrase descended into hell refers to Christ's suffering that could not be seen. And so what I, when I say, I believe he descended into hell, what am I saying? Let me leave you three ideas. I'm saying that not only the great exchange includes Christ's righteousness for my sin, Christ's victory for my shame, but that it also includes Christ experiencing hell so that you can experience heaven. Christ descended into hellish torment so you could be raised to the beautiful heights of heaven. As Michael Horton says, his hell gained our heaven, his curse secured our blessing, and his incalculable grief brought us immeasurable joy. I believe he descended into hell. What am I saying? That Christ gives you hope always in suffering and peace always in the face of death. And so if Christ experienced hell and God forsakenness and the grave and has been raised victorious, then if you are in Christ, then the last enemy death has no power over you. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? As Apostle Paul asked, God gives us the victory through Christ our Lord, who has experienced Hades, the grave, and death itself. He descended into hell. I believe he descended into hell. Third, what am I saying? I'm saying that as a church, when we gather and recite the Apostles' Creed, we are joining with a great cloud of witnesses and saints in all times, in all places, that we are saying the Apostles' Creed, we're joining with Mongolian Christians in the 21st century, German Christians in the 16th century, Ethiopian Christians in the 3rd century, in various times and in various places who courageously said, this is what I believe. Sometimes even in the face of persecution and death, we are a church of a great cloud of witnesses. We are the church gathered at Trinity, but the church exists far beyond our own walls. As one writer has said, I for one would rather have an ancient creed that makes me think about my faith than a contemporary mick creed that makes everything a happy meal for childlike minds. We are joined with the church invisible and one day we will be triumphant because Christ descended even to hell. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this Reformation Sunday. This was a different sermon. This was an historical sermon, a theological sermon, but 
The Apostles' Creed stands at the very center of our faith. For so many ages and for so many churches, that next week as we take Holy Communion, we will say the Apostles' Creed together with the whole church universal. So we thank you, Jesus, that you did experience this hellish torment on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet you experienced death just like us. And just like us, you came out victorious, bringing your people with you in the resurrection and the ascension. And to that, all we have to say is thank you and amen. In God's name we do pray. Amen. We'll take up our offering as we sing our final song today. You can stay seated for the first two verses. Let's all stand and sing praise the Father. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God alone, of all who'd come 
to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, then the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth the whole shall not kneel and shall not fade. By his blood and in his name and in his freedom I am free. Praise the Father, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of holy majesty, praise forever to the Praise forever. Praise forever to the King of Kings. Let's put our hands together and celebrate this morning. Thank you, Lord. Uh, this month, I actually celebrate 20 years of ordained ministry, and I think that. Uh, God gives pastors these verses like Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 10 to keep us really humble. <laughs> but I do think it's, it's helpful for a congregation to sort of see their pastor squirm to wrestle with the Word of God in all its fullness, sometimes in its mystery, because we're all called to that task together as a church family, are we not? To wrestle with the mystery of these words that bring us life. So won't you go today to wrestle with, to be shaped by and transformed by the very word of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. In the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit.